Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Thank you very much for a, for a warm welcome and I'm, I'm pleased to be here on behalf of Visegrad Inside and to partner up with, with fantastic organizations that lead, uh, lead uh, on, the, on the theme of, of strategic um, uh, reflection and, and uh, the values of, that, that put together transatlantic space uh, for democracy and, and human rights um, and uh, hopefully peace on, uh, in Europe and, and, and the US. Uh, my name is Wojciech Przybylski, I'm Editor-in-Chief of Visegrad Insight. Uh, it's, uh, it's a media platform in Central Europe that connects the mainstream media in, uh, in the countries of Visegrad, so Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, but also beyond in Romania and Bulgaria and the Baltic states to uh, focus on democratic security and create a transnational space for discussion about Europe, uh, the, the space on uh, the future of Europe, to give Central Europe a voice. And it is also an analytical platform with over 30 fellows from all across uh, the, the, the region, including recently also Future of Ukraine fellows that come together physically as often as possible, but also online uh, to work together and to com uh, come with the best uh, uh, state-of-the-art analysis and, uh, and uh, public outreach in the media to, uh, to foster democratic values in the space of Central Europe. One of the things we have been doing, as Daniel pointed out, since uh, 2018, and in a way in response to European Union uh, uh, scenarios uh, presented by the Juncker Commission, was to develop uh, a structured response, a reflection point that comes authentically from policy leaders, civil society uh, from across uh, Central Europe. That, of course, has certain method of work, it's not a methodology, and it involves research, a lot of uh, talks in, in a closed space, and then there is a lot of debate, public debate, dissemination, uh, through discussions online, in person, but also through the media. And the outcomes uh, are these papers which drive a discussion, and currently we are in this driving the discussion phase across Europe. So we're uh, since uh, September, reflecting on, um, on the question which I will now share in the presentation uh, with you, which is um, how will Europe look like also because of the war? We have started this exercise through the conference on, on the future of Europe and has been uh, co-sponsored by one of the uh, programs of the European Union. And it, um, it started in September uh, last year um, when we embarked with a number of uh, partner organizations on, um, on this quest to give Central Europe a voice in a, in a situation that otherwise Central European voice usually is being dictated by Viktor Orban, Jaroslav Kaczynski at some points. So to show that the, that also the diversity of, of certain positions that are, present, that are being presented from Central Europe. So we ran a number of these exercises and the for, in the formula of foresight. Uh, sorry, we go further. We looked at global trends uh, uh, that are uh, important for, and have been beyond before this war, important for the developments in, um, in Europe. And uh, we played them out 
through the lens of Central Europe when, it's, when the lenses are, are directed at the future of Europe. Central Europe, to, to say the, the least, does not exist without Europe. I mean, the whole Central Europe uh, agenda is dependent on a united Europe, on a certain ambition that has been developed and, and has been fulfilled over the past decades. And it's, it's, um, all the shocks, uh, shockwaves that go through the world are making Central Europe also so vulnerable and also so interesting for the, uh, for the future of, of Europe. One thing I, sh I wanted to highlight before I go to the scenario is it, and it's an important element of our uh, reflection on the future of Europe, is that Europe has been undergoing a major shift. And as we looked at Europe, we looked, and that's beyond European Union, uh, also with the neighborhood involved, we looked at uh, the emerging strategic autonomy. And one of also recommendations from the report is to rethink strategic autonomy, not as merely defense and foreign policy approach, but as means to have Europe treat itself seriously, to be part of the, uh, you know, not just the post-war peace project to contain the past, and not just a form uh, of, of uh, projecting certain values, which was the story since the 90s uh, until recently, but also as a foreign policy actor, as a unity that was capable of, of effectively conducting Brexit negotiations, innovating policy response when it came to the pandemic uh, through the means that were available, that uh, generated an ambition to be in interdependent, if not independent, of the malign uh, foreign actors uh, through energy uh, in the past years uh, to eventually, apart from the, the energy packages, bring the green transition as an ambition to be more independent and to lead in the, in the world and many other elements. And through that recognition of that ambition, we looked whether these ambitions are being fulfilled more or less in subsequent scenarios. I'll narrate briefly the logic of those. Scenario number one explains, oh, before I go through all the scenarios, in all of the scenarios, we assume that this war is not ending very soon. All of these scenarios, when we were almost ready when the war broke out, and we decided to postpone to reflect again on the situation that presented itself. And we assumed by the time we, we presented them that the situation for Europe has to take into consideration a very bad scenario, very bad circumstance, which is Russia need to assert its role in the world by aggressive action against the neighborhoods. And it has been doing so before, of course, every 10 years, projecting violence on its very immediate uh, um, neighborhood. But importantly, in this situation, we assume that each scenario has this relationship to the Russia attacking uh, Ukraine um, by open or subvert forms of, of hostilities. And each scenario discusses different forms of it. The first one, first scenario, is about losing strategic autonomy. Europe losing strategic autonomy that has been in the making. We are applauding, in a way, the efforts that have been made through various actors, various means, um, that, that has been making Europe whole and free. But such an effort here may be undermined by peace or a ceasefire. Imagine a situation in this scenario in which a change of leadership, a potential change of leadership in Russia does not 
lead to a more hostile leader than the current one, which is still an option. But to someone who says, okay, that's, that's it. Let's, let's have uh, a moment of, of pause. We are not attacking you anymore. <laughs> Russia speaking to Ukraine, but uh, let's have a moment uh, that, that breaks, uh, breaks away from the hostility and from the death, because we need to sit at a table. Now, part of, the, uh, part of Europe, including Ukraine current leadership and many forces, political forces across Central Eastern Europe, will um, say, mm, that's, that's a trick we don't want to play anymore, because frozen conflict method for the past uh, three decades have been the method of uh, actually uh, subverting democracies and subverting the independence of countries and subverting the project of united autonomous Europe. But many other in Europe will say, well, that's the right moment to actually sit at the table, have uh, uh, you know, meddle through the situation uh, and have a peace. And in this scenario, we say, this is the moment in which potential for strategic autonomy is lost. And the second scenario number two, um, given the hostilities also on the civilian population, civilian targets, we see an, an unprecedented uh, moment across Europe, especially when it comes to the public opinion, to the citizens, to, to the foundations of European democracies across, uh, across the continent, in which country, in countries like Germany and France and Italy, the support for Ukraine and the uh, condemnation of, of Russia is at points even higher than in countries like Hungary or uh, you know, Slovakia or many others in Central Europe. In a way, it is a moment where many countries, and not, not to say that Ukraine uh, is not supported by societies in Slovakia or Hungary, but you have a moment to, to realize uh, that across the continent you have uh, a push towards uh, um, from, from the bottom up to, to do something about the situation. That creates also political opportunities that in these scenarios are explained as countries which are not in the core of European project moving closer to the core, or at least making every effort to integrate beyond NATO, beyond um, uh, the, the, the enlargement uh, of the EU, which is already moving on, on this logic, we're specifically discussing here, uh, and also beyond, maybe uh, just one other point, beyond uh, potential Eurozone accession and this drive for Romania, Bulgaria, Croatia, and also recently even Hungary, accelerating into, you know, jumping on closer to the European uh, institutional um, uh, integration process. We are speculating here of the, uh, of the role of, of Great Britain that steps in, uh, scenarios have been presented in September, that steps into different forms of rebuilding uh, uh, security system in Europe. We are talking here about the absence of uh, OSCE, in fact, de facto, the Helsinki Accords are no more since the uh, position of, of Russia uh, is gone on respecting sovereignty of uh, nation states across Europe. So there are new forms of arrangements to be found on, on the future of, of, um, of security system in, in Europe. And then uh, this scenario played forward may result in UK being more involved um, in, in building up this security system the elements of which we can find perhaps in the European political community, we'll see how it goes, that was launched in, in October, and that we foresee is also a possibility 
maybe ending in, in a reverse of Brexit uh, by the end of the decade. Very quickly now, oops, two, two, uh, two last scenarios. They look at the society elements of the future of Europe more than the, let's say, big strategy and the political, uh, political strategies of, of external um, uh, role for, uh, for Europe. The European demographic deal relates to the ongoing effort that Europe needs to undertake to support Ukraine. It needs to undertake the support for, uh, of, of Ukraine if it wants to stay united, if it wants to be uh, hold, uh, hold together and, and build up the, the future of um, strategic autonomy for itself. But this effort that will be um, largely uh, defense effort, uh, defense industry effort, helping out to produce uh, and, and deliver whatever means of, of self-defense to Ukraine, will also create a backlash. It's already creating a backlash, specifically visible in Central Eastern Europe, which is a demographic backlash. There is a sense of lost generations and the, the demographic divide building up in uh, Central Eastern Europe and also in many other parts of, of, of Europe. And there is a sense of a generation that has been born, I mean, born before the pandemic, but has been coming of age uh, around the pandemic time, which has created enormous uh, tensions on the societies that will have and bear and that will bear fruit in the political sense. So unless we want to see an, a social, big social conflict in uh, in Europe and across Europe, and we know it from history how, how terrible it has been, Europe will need to innovate uh, on the, also on social policies, delivering a new kind of social peace. And then we speculate the details in the scenario. And the fourth scenario is careful what the EU wish for. And it plays forward the fears of more of a conservative sides, also from the Central European society, that explain why there is a strong opposition to reforming EU top-down from, from, uh, from the EU treaty perspective. In scenario number two, we were speculating that the further enlargement of the EU would be possible even as a trade-off of reforming internally the EU uh, decision-making process for the enlargement, for which you obviously will need some sort of a consensus. Here we assume that there is, in a set of circumstances that are also projected from the Conference on the Future of Europe, an opening for the, an opening for the uh, treaty change. And we um, treat those reservations from Central European countries with, uh, especially the conservative side of, of, of them, with respect and showcase uh, a new wave of populism that may very well emerge after Viktor Orban and coming from Central Europe, build on unfinished business of uh, the democratic uh, instruments and uh, institutions in EU, should an open treaty change be in place, sp stipulating more power to the European Parliament, more power to the um, uh, to, to the institutions that may be taken over easier uh, without proper checks and balances by uh, here the, the made-up name uh, Mr. Andrei Novak, who, is, who might be capitalizing. So yet another leader of populism from Central Eastern Europe. So with this, I will conclude. There are two things. One, I already said, build strategic autonomy, but reform the concept, reform thinking about the concept. And that is the thing that I'm, I'm most uh, 
uh, I see the necessity to, to discuss. And if you're thinking about strategic autonomy of the, for, the, for the future of Europe, and you, that involves essentially today mostly also the, the new um, independency on, on energy and fossil fuels, you need new, sor new sources of, of this autonomy to be found also in, in you know, rare materials and industrial potential of the countries that want to accept to, to, to join the EU, like Western Balkans or, or, um, or Ukraine. So it makes perfect sense to match interests with values by, uh, by uh, leaning into this direction. All good, all good, Wojtek. I mean, this is, this is what we needed for, uh, for our discussion. Uh, but, you know, welcome. Welcome to our, our foresight discussion, uh, the war and the future of Europe. I'm especially happy to uh, talk to distinguished experts and, uh, and friends. Um, let me introduce them to you quickly. Uh, first, there is uh, Susanna Weg. She uh, is a visiting fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States and a researcher of the European University in Frankfurt. Her analytical focus lies on Central Eastern Europe, uh, especially on Hungary, if I'm not mistaken. Hungary, amongst others. <laughs> and uh, she specializes in the state of democracy as well. Then there is uh, Goran Budjowski. He is a director of programs for the Open Society, uh, Europe and Central Asia. He is an expert in democratic transition, civil society, citizen participation, and many, many more things. He uh, published for foreign policy, Die Zeit, Open Democracy, and a couple of other media outlets. Uh, he has a degree from the Central European University, right? right? And, uh, in uh, another degree in organizational behavior from George Washington University. <laughs> then there is uh, Michael Meyer-Resende. He is uh, executive director of the Berlin-based NGO Democracy Reporting International. He is a lawyer, which is uh, very important because we're gonna talk about the rule of law in Europe. Uh, he worked with the OEC, the BBC, and uh, yeah, this is what he did. And the EU. And the EU, okay. <laughs> a lot of important institutions, we're going to talk about that as well. You know about uh, Wojtek already, Wojciech Trebilski, he's a... Uh, I, I introduced you know, myself, thank you very much. You know, just, just uh, <laughs> let me say one more thing, yeah. because uh, you, you were published or quoted in a lot of media outlets as well, which is uh, not a coincidence, you got quoted by American media outlets, I think, by media outlets in France and Poland and Germany as well, uh, to Die Welt. Uh, this is, this is the coincidence I wanted to talk about. Um, I work for Die Welt. <laughs> uh, my name is Philip Fritz. I'm a correspondent for Central Eastern Europe in, uh, in Warsaw. Let me start right away with uh, Susanna and Hungary. Um, this is a complicated one. You know, I think we're all pretty much interested in Hungary these days. Uh, I mean, when Russia started its uh, war of aggression, its war of terror against Ukraine, uh, a lot of European societies, a lot of European governments were in shock and in parts, sometimes radically, sometimes less radically, changed their posture, their politics, their policies towards uh, Russia. Hungary, not so much, for different reasons. Um, Orban's government, Viktor Orban's government, is very critical towards uh, EU sanctions towards Russia. Uh, he didn't allow 
weapons to be transferred to Ukraine via Hungarian territory. Those are just two examples. Um, how will such an Hungary that is an outlier in the European Union in that respect uh, shape Europe in the future, maybe after the war? Thank you for this very uh, easy introductory question. <laughs> um, well, as the saying goes, it's really dangerous to make predictions, especially about the future. So I will try to extrapolate from, from the current trends and uh, see where that takes us. Um, I think generally Central Europe is not exactly appearing as a very uh, constructive uh, player in, uh, in the scenarios that uh, Wojciech has presented, but definitely the uh, biggest um, problem child of the region has been uh, Viktor Orban and, uh, and his government in Hungary. Um, and uh, you are very right that particularly in the case uh, of the war and the um, EU response to Russia in the context of the war, uh, the Orban government has been um, blocking, uh, threatening with veto, watering down uh, common EU steps. So uh, we can uh, expect that uh, this trend is going to continue when it comes to the Hungarian attitude towards any sort of joint EU action, uh, in particular regarding Russia. But how uh, Hungary and Viktor Orban would seek to shape uh, Europe potentially after the war, I think is really hard to um, answer, because there are a lot of uh, moving variables here. So what do we mean by after the war? What is the outcome of the war? Uh, how is uh, Orbán's situation going to look in Hungary? Uh, will the current uh, economic crisis in the country weaken his positions? Uh, normally we see that uh, populist radical right forces can capitalize on uh, such crisis situations. But, but is that so when they are incumbents? Is that so when their uh, economic policy uh, has severely contributed to that uh, economic crisis that is now being uh, exacerbated by the uh, overall situation in Europe? So I think there are a lot of moving uh, targets here. Uh, however, I think uh, the war in particular uh, did not help. Uh, Orban's situation and it did not help him to uh, really pursue the vision and build an alliance around his uh, future vision of uh, Europe, um, particularly because in that regard he would need uh, a strong uh, law and justice like Poland. And the war definitely contributes to the cooling of these relations. I don't say that it breaks it down. I don't think that's the case. But it definitely contributes to the cooling of these relations and joint action. Uh, we also see that in this context, pursuing that sort of pan-European alliance building that uh, Orban envisioned when he left the uh, European People's Party is really running into uh, a roadblock. And not particularly much has come out of that. We already saw last, I 
think it was December, uh, then the radical right parties gathered in Warsaw uh, for a summit, but this did not particularly lead anywhere and already Lega wasn't showing up. Uh, now we don't really see such gatherings happening anymore. We see some level of very, very low level, I would say, cooperation in the European Parliament, but this is not amounting to much. So I think uh, <coughs> the longer the war lasts, uh, the further Orban's vision uh, is slipping. It does not mean uh, automatically that uh, I would expect Wojtek's second scenario to come by uh, and Europe suddenly finding uh, its will to pull together. I don't think that's an automatism here, uh, but I think um, Orban's um, vision of uh, a Europe of uh, nation states that is strongly building on the alliances of, uh, of radical right parties in that sense uh, is slipping away. Um, yeah, I, I think I would leave it here and we can have an officer go back. I would like to stick to, to Hungary for, for a little bit, uh, Michael. Um, I mean, there's a lot of talk about Germany or Germany needs to grow up or the European Union needs to grow up in terms of uh, security policy. So uh, the wording is Europe is a geopolitical player or is a geopolitical um, actor, which means some consolidation on, you know, on a geopolitical level. But is a consolidation on a geopolitical level for Europe possible if, I mean, I'm asking that as a lawyer and a rule of law expert, if there is no consolidation um, on a rule of law level inside of the European Union. What do you think about that? Yeah, thanks for the question. I make one preliminary remark because you talked about ties. I forgot my proper shoes today. It was so rainy, so I'm here in sport shoes. Not only a tie, also sport shoes. Apologies for that. I was horrified to see that it's visible online, but I have to live with that. Um, on your question, I think uh, 24th of February was a bit of rupture also about the whole thinking, or it should be a rupture on the thinking about rule of law and democracy inside the EU. Why? In the past, we have discussed this whole question under the heading of Article 2 of the EU Treaty, saying rule of law, democracy, human rights are values on which the EU is founded. And from this, a lot have flown, and it has taken us all many people here in the room a long time to push EU institutions and member state governments to say this article is not just symbolic, this article is real. It's essential for the functioning of the EU that we take these values seriously and take them as operational values that you have to translate into policies and into law. And we have gone a certain way. We have the European Court of Justice now handing down judgments a lot in that field. We have the rule of law mechanism and other things, but they have taken all very long. And what has 24th February changed in all this, I think? Before 24th February, we have thought about it very much as the European space is a legal space. It has to be functional. Things like the European arrest warrant cannot work if we don't have rule of law everywhere. We are co-legislators. Every member state sits in the council. We cannot have uh, foul apples in this um, basket because it spoils the entire process. All that remains true, but I think 24th of February should change our thinking in one more way to say this is not only about the, in the integrity of the democratic space inside the EU and of all the legal uh, connections that we have built through the EU, but that we start 
understanding it's actually a core security interest that we are democracies. And Russian full-fledged invasion of Ukraine is of course exhibit A to say authoritarian governments are a security threat. And we have to see democracy and human rights as a security matter. And that's easily said, but I'm in this field for 20 years. I worked in the EU and that's why I uh, mentioned it in the Department for Human Rights and Democracy. And I'm working a lot with the German Foreign Office, uh, supporting our projects. But there was always a little bit of sense that democracy and human rights is a value. Value is about idealism, nice to have. We'll always help with that. We do projects, but it went, if it gets to hard interest as opposed to values, then maybe often we do have to you know, put the interest first because you know, after all, cheap Russian gas is so valuable compared to what's going on in Russia. And I think here we really try to effect a, a real change to say this is really about our interests as well. It's also values, we should never discount that, but it's really interest. And it's interest already, I think, at the level of understanding the world. So if we look back at the last 20 years of how we have discussed Russia, who has seen Russia in a way that was realistic? It was the human rights advocates, it was the democracy community. All these business people and uh, many politicians uh, built up a picture of Russia that was irrealistic. They didn't deal with uh, the reality of Russia. So I, I think for the future, we have to make a push to understand this is about security. This has to be wired into our foreign offices, development offices, into our chancellery and into our public thinking. And I see a huge amount of challenge there still because I do feel there's it's very widespread, this instinct, yeah, it's nice to have, but... Mm -hmm. And uh, so, that, that's why I think we um, have to change our thinking and it has to apply, of course, inside the EU. And now I ask you, if you want to give me two more minutes, I talk about Hungary, but I don't want to take too much time. Sure, sure. It's okay? So, Hungary, I think, is the exhibit two. A is Russia, of course, and Hungary is exhibit B um, that tells us that a country that is autocratizing in the EU becomes a security risk, which is we share the security interests that Sweden and Finland joins the EU and Hungary doesn't ratify at the moment. Not the EU, the NATO, of course. Um, we all think that 18 billion for Ukraine are essential for our security and stability of Ukraine, and Hungary is not doing it, and then some other things, as you know, about minimum um, company tax, etc. But all this and many other things that you have mentioned already, Hungary poses a security risk. Now, the discussion is a little bit complicated because the other autocratizing member is Poland, and I would say in terms of security, it's an exemplary actor in supporting Ukraine, much better than a more functioning democracy like Germany. So it's not a simple correlation. But I would say the fact that Germany has not been an amazing actor, it has been a counterproductive actor of security in Eastern Europe with its closeness to Russia is not based on the fact that it was a democracy. It's based on other things. And I would still also say that the authoritarian, authoritarian tendencies of the Polish government are still not particularly helpful. I mean, the support to Ukraine is shared across Polish population, I think, large parts across the political spectrum. And in a way, the current government still creates a lot of friction about things like appointing judges and rule of law, which are counterproductive. We should now really 
go for solving essential problems. So even there, I would see that this autoprotization is a problem, but I don't want to do it, be too simplistic. So not saying it's totally automatic. Uh, it can be play out like Hungary or Poland, and we can see that quite on a different end in this equation. But the essential point for me is that uh, this situation should tell us that democracy and rule of law are core foreign policy interests, and we should treat them that way. So uh, to, to rephrase what you what you just said, uh, if we want more security, we need more democracy. Totally. So, uh, Goran, this this one then goes to you because uh, you're an expert in democratic transition. Um, is is Europe going to become more democratic because of the crisis we are witnessing right now, or less democratic? Mm. Uh, great question. I can start with Hungary. That was the road that I walked four years ago from Budapest to Berlin, together with my many colleagues who moved the office. But um, it's not that simple because there are no Trojan horses. Uh, there are some uh, extremes. Hungary and Poland are those. But the rottening of democracy, and I deliberately avoid the word backsliding, because backsliding has a different connotation. Rottening has also happened as well in the affluent West, uh, in the sort of profilgate uh, uh, north, and to some extent as well in the south of Europe. And I think we have to look at that. And let me give you some populist take on it. Look today, Which country has the most draconian law uh, prohibiting protests? Everybody will raise their hands and say Poland. Wrong answer. Spain. For a very simple reason. Catalonia. Second question. Who has violated human rights of its own citizens the most in Europe in the last uh, seven to eight years? A lot of people, including myself, my colleagues, will say easily and readily hundred. But actually it will be incorrect. It's France. If you call Mohammed in France, you actually have a very tough life. And this is not to suggest that Spain or France are not democratic or they're par with Hungary and Poland. On the contrary, they are to great extent actually amazing democracies, in particular Spain, with a lot of innovation, a lot of flair. But we forget to look at some of the fine prints because that what happens The fine print becomes the big print in the hands of probably the most, skilled, most skillful politician of the 20th century in Europe, and that's Viktor Orban. So he took and he collected that as a, together to create a new system. So we have to see where the weaknesses. Second key weakness, look what Russia exhibited. I, you, you introduced me probably unjustifiably, I, I would say I, I'm more observing how democratic transition has been not successful rather than successful. But we, I do remember the times of the economic uh, crisis where actually, you know, for Greece to repay its debts, to, by the way, German and French banks in, in, uh, mostly, you know, it took seven to 10 billion a week, seven to 10 billion a week. At the same time, Russia was buying its influence with any around with three billion on the on the gas front. So this is again not to, it's to suggest that actually for a long time democracy has been taken for granted. Now let's start from that point. I have three fundamental questions, and I deliberately don't want to use the democracy 
as a word because we talk a lot and then we do not, nothing. First, I, I appreciate the Wojciech has the excellent scenarios, and in particular, I appreciate that they didn't put Central Eastern Europe. You know, we people from the region or the center or south, we like to see ourselves in the center, we're not. And that's good news. Let's ask the fundamental question. How will Europe defend itself? Until February 24th, this was a known question. How will Europe earn its money? Until February 24th, buy basically cheap energy from authoritarian governments. And after February 24th, look where the deals are. Again, I'm not, I'm not accusing, don't get me wrong, I'm just taking the facts. So we have to, Europe has to deal with authoritarian states one way or the other. And then we forget the third question, I think some of the scenarios did not forget it, but what does Europe will earn its money for? What do we want to do with this money? What does German 1% want to do with the money? And they're pretty rich. Go at the old databases about wealth inequality. And I say Germany because we're here, I can, I can move on. Now, why I'm saying this, I'm not saying to be critical, but I have to say we have to put democracy in the, what I just presented as almost like a magic triangle, which is defense, which is money, economy, and identity. And we have to look at what, not only democracy, but what civil society organizations, what activists will do about these three. And this is where I see huge, huge, not troubles, but uh, I would say opportunity. First, on the issue of defense, and I will speak pragmatically and I will stop after that, because I, I wanna, I'm a practitioner, I want to see the theory, but I want to see what exactly will be done. One thing that this war showed us, the silver lining, is in, on defense, first we forgot that actually in this world, we all saw that it was like a police in the, the courtyard, and we didn't equip ourselves. Also, what we saw, if you have a corrupted government, you cannot actually successfully win a war. And I think that's Russia. But also, if you have a less corruption in the defense sector in Ukraine, actually, you can defend yourself. And since I come from a flat or a whole rich history, our foundation as well, of anti-corruption, I would really zero in. That would be a great way to say, you know, it's not only about spending money, but spending them smartly because we need to defend ourselves. Second, um, I, and I really have to dig out, it was nice to find somebody Polish uh, for this thing, uh, Polish Canadian, Michal Kalecki, long time ago, um, argued uh, uh, basically that crisis stock is instrumentalized for the defense of business interests. I think civil society has an ample opportunity to break this, not to follow, and actually talk about the economy. Well, not from one crisis to the other. Actually, I would uh, really claim that we do not have a crisis right now. The crisis is not about the energy. The crisis is about the business model, and the crisis is about letting it happen on our, our own watch. And our means all Europeans. And last but not least, identity. Um, sorry, I, I can get on, um, but I, I have to do this example. Imagine a Troika of Portugal, Spain, and Greece landing at the beautiful Berlin Brandenburg Airport and discussing with German government their energy policy and where they failed. Of course, nobody mentions this. I think civil society and experts should start to mention this, not because it will happen in real life, 
But because actually that's the rule of law that we are looking at. The same Troika landed in Athens, landed in Lisbon, never not Wally, landed in, 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 in Madrid. And rule of law functions, but also the smaller countries have a bit of don't get me wrong, I'm not arguing that we should go with the policy brief of the Troika coming and burning Brother in the airport. Um, but I think it's important in our mindset to think to think that actually European Union is a collection of the big boys and the small boys and the girls. And I come to the last point, identity. We forget that. Why we forget it? Because we have some winning propositions at our hand that only civil society took and we entered into cultural wars. We talk about abortion. Interesting thing when you talk about Eastern Europe. Pretty divisive issue, but also a minimal solution. We talk about the LGBTQI, but we talk in the frame of the enemies of it, not in our own frame. We talk about migration, again in the frames. These are all issues that have been, to some extent, left to the radical right to command, and I think we need to repossess. And in that context, I would say, Certainly, I will see at least two out of four scenarios that see flourishing of democracy. If we don't do that, uh, I like to call this Qatar light. That will be the future of Europe. And what is Qatar light? Qatar, I, I, of course, I use it because we, many people are watching, some not. The, 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 the football championship, you have three tier citizenry. In that case, Europe will go into that direction. You will have the three tiers, and then we will slowly see the death of democracy for the tier three and tier two, as in Qatar, when you're a labor manual, manual worker, you cannot imagine any right. Even if you are some of the white collar workers, be that UK, British, or not, you have rights to a certain point, only if you're Qatarian. In European Union, if we do not solve the democratic slash migration puzzle, we may go in the lighter version of it, but essentially uh, establishing a system which won't be, which will be discriminatory. Sorry that I took a lot of time and I threw a lot of issues, but I, I'm really looking for our conversation. So, so a lot of issues that nobody knows if Europe's going to be more democratic or not. Um, but you know, I, I if the business model democratizes, uh, Europe will be more democratic. But if we defend ourselves and respect two percent, it will be uh, for defense smartly, not in corrupted deals. It will be democratic. There's another thing, uh, Susanna, I wanted to ask you. Um, you, you called uh, Viktor Orban the most skillful politician in Europe. Is that true? It's okay to say no sometimes. Define <laughs> um, skillful. <laughs> uh, I would say no. Uh, I would say no, I think uh, in certain regards uh, he has skills in uh, patching together the worst practices of various uh, democracies in, in Europe and uh, creating a discourse around it that uh, skillfully sells it at home and also to certain electorates uh, in Europe, so he might appear uh, skillful, but if we look at uh, domestic delivery, uh, policy delivery, then I think that's definitely not the case. Mm -hmm. um, I got another one for you, uh, Wojtek. I mean, this one is related to, to some sort of 
Schadenfreude. Uh, one can see or feel, especially in uh, Central Eastern Europe, uh, towards Germany, because uh, Germany, in regards with Russia, failed on so many levels, be it uh, its energy policy, security policy, and so on and so forth. And we're witnessing now um, something remarkable. Uh, this, is, this is Poland now, Poland becoming a frontline state, maybe a security provider in, in the future. Uh, but what does that mean for Europe's security architecture, maybe after the war? And is the center of Europe, not just security-wise, but is it shifting eastward to Poland? Well, for a very simple reason that we have the most potent army now in Ukraine, yes. Uh, there is no other army in Europe that would match uh, Ukraine. Should Ukraine decide to go west instead of defending its borders, we would be all in trouble, including Poland. Uh, <laughs> we wouldn't give ammunition to that. Uh, yeah. They're innovative, unfortunately, and then they, they could get it from other guys. No, but seriously, the, Poland, Poland has uh, set itself on, on, these, on this ambition now to, to, uh, to reform and to build up its, its potential. To, to live up, in a way, to, to the promise of being a NATO member. I mean, Poland is simply fulfilling a common decision of all NATO countries to build up its military uh, potential, and it's not be much beyond 2% goal of, and starting from a relatively low level. Uh, so, it's, it's more of a, in the context of the of the decisions of the others weren't, weren't really serious about it. And today we hear also the Germans also postponing the, the, the decisions uh, about uh, being, you know, being able to deliver on the military and defense goals. Poland is in relative terms also going, going up, but it's not going to be a superpower. You know, this, we're not going to world in 100 years by what was Friedman, right? From, from the, the, Another Hungarian, uh, actually. Really? A uh, geopolitical um, uh, futurologist. The so I'm not a futurologist here. I, I think this, um, the current state of affairs is definitely showing that there is a homework that hasn't been done between Poland and, and, and Germany. And, it's, and this dynamics is even more important after Brexit, because you cannot imagine the future of institutional Europe today without Poland, and Germany and France speaking to one another uh, more often and on better terms. And that requires changes in all of these three countries. Um, but, but Poland is definitely not going to make the future of Europe on its own. It just doesn't have the potential. Uh, Central Europe uh, altogether is, is here very important. But the current leadership uh, of Poland sees Central Europe as an alternative to European project. And this is a problem limiting the, the ambitions that, that Warsaw is, is showing. On the other hand, should there be a change in Poland with the next government, it will not be immediate that Poland fulfills the potential uh, of you know, this e equal partner to France and Germany, also because administrative and financial resources are not there in the country. But for now, what Poland does, and many other Central European countries do, they deliver on the attitude. And, uh, you know, attitude hopefully continues, 
perhaps the, the big potential of, of, of delivering on solutions still remains in the collective and also in the specific actions of countries like Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, would, you, would you agree uh, with the sentence that parliamentary elections in Poland next year are going to be uh, the most important elections for the European Union for a long time to come? Yes, in the sense that it's a make-or-break uh, moment. Mm -hmm. they, they, this will be a constructive partner. Um, you know, we can see different outcomes of these elections, but, but anything that breaks away from the current direction, including some very, very strange and uh, exotic coalitions mm -hmm. that we may have in, in the government, will be a new opening for Poland in a new situation. And we need this new opening because currently the country is stuck internally. Even the party, the governing party, is stuck with its old decisions that are out of context of today. Thank you. Um, it's almost seven o'clock. I think it's uh, time to open up the panel for, for questions. So in case you have any questions, I hope you have questions, please uh, just raise your hand. Oh, really? Okay. Do you need a microphone? <laughs> so the people outside this room get into uh, yeah, done. There is the microphone. If you can speak to this one. Technically, but I think oh, oh, that can be also yeah, for yeah. me. That's, that's okay. Oh. Um, I'm sure that a large part of our audience, uh, online audience, is from the United States, and I think their main takeaway will be that the Europeans are relying on us but are not planning with us. <laughs> because the US hasn't appeared in any of the, the scenarios. Uh, and I would like to have three questions, but just uh, a sort in between. When the Biden administration came in power, then the, the main message was that this will be the last US administration which is leaning towards Europe and is understanding Europe. Now, if we take a look on, uh, on the headlines reporting about the Inflation Reduction Act, then the main message is that transatlantic relations are as deep and frozen as, uh, as in the darkest Trump era. And, uh, and here are my three rather provocative questions to, to all of you. First, can Europe plan with the United States, mid and long term? Uh, should there be a further scenario inserted which is centered around the breakdown of the transatlantic relations in the middle of the war in Europe? Uh, because I think when these scenarios were considered and uh, the mapping was based, that would be too radical to seriously consider. And the third one, can Europe afford the breakdown of the transatlantic relationship in the middle of the war? So, yeah. Michael, maybe you want to start, then we go this way. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that it didn't come up. I talked about these security strategies, which we studied of European governments and some of them are much more uh, outspoken. They, many of them have updated their security strategies this, this year and the Danish one is particularly outspoken and not only it talks about Hungary and the risk to European security, it also says if there is another Trump administration we are in big trouble and we should prepare to it. It's a security challenge for us. So Danish tend to be quite outspoken. I think it's good because that's what we should be discussing and it's often politely not mentioned in all these discussions. Um, I think we would be negligent to uh, ignore the next threat or risk, let's call it a risk, and should really make tremendous efforts to be as sovereign, as you say, strategically sovereign, 
as possible, not as an anti-US uh, move, but as, a, as an insurance for the possibility that this US support won't be there. And I do feel the support that the US is giving, that the per capita support that the US is giving to Ukraine is bigger than any other country in the world. This is a shame, shame for us, I have to say. That that's, I mean, this is next door. These are our neighbors. And so you could say, sure, we need the capabilities of the United States to come in, but in purely uh, you know, financial cost or, of, of our support to Ukraine, why is the US leading this? I, I don't understand it. Well, uh, we, Europe would not survive currently a, a, a breakdown of, of, of this relationship. Uh, um, I don't know what it would even mean because US uh, would not let go. It's in the global interest of, of, of US to maintain the line of strategic uh, relations with Europe built on values and built on uh, the, the the tension that has emerged between democracy and autocracy. But on the first question, which I find most, most intriguing to me, is what can Europe do together with US on planning and delivering? I think ammo. I think Europe can produce a lot of ammunition. It could produce a lot of ammunition. And given the current state of first Central Europe could produce a lot of ammunition that Ukrainians could use because Central Europe still has the factories that used to produce non-NATO ammunition. And defense sector in Europe is also a business sector that we should probably reconcile our thinking uh, about and importantly align with identity, align with the rule of law transparency, which for much part of the past years it hasn't. It has been out of this scope of, of scrutiny uh, and the, there is a lot of also corruption in that sector. But Europe needs to uh, find its role and producing ammo before it produces seventh generation airplanes is, is perhaps uh, the, the thing it could do really now with meaningful impact on the relationship with US. It's great that you think already of seventh generation. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which I, I, I'm lost a little bit about this. Plans. What do you think, Suzanne? To the third question, uh,
become more equal partner. Um, and through that, I think we can actually improve ties and relations uh, with, with the US. Um, I think, you know, your first question, uh, I think uh, for the Europeans, they have to be aware that they will be takers of way too many decisions. And that actually others will have much more power. US is one, China is next, but also let's not forget mid-powers. You know, what Saudi Arabia does, what Turkey does, I, I mentioned earlier Qatar, they're not there, but there will be many mid-powers, so, you know, today we saw signing uh, papers in India and whatnot, so Europe will actually, and I, I always, I will go back to what we can do about that, otherwise we'll stay in the foreign policy. What we can do about that is really look at the, the level of uh, European connectedness in the civil society sector, in the expert sector, with all of these people. Mainly through, let me tell you what you should do. Rarely, let me listen and learn and imbibe a bit, and I think it's not only about being humble, actually it's about being strategic. So, for example, I, uh, we're talking about Euro-Atlantic connection. I remember the vivid times, uh, uh, vividly the 90s and early 2000s. You will have connections on so many different areas. Today, the best connected ties are among the radical right groups. So, it's not only about what governments do, but actually what the different civic connections are there, and I think we're neglecting that. It doesn't mean that we'll resolve the problems that you're asking, but it's important. Second, uh, we ask this really even as analytically incorrect, what Europe? What Europe? Who met Xi Jinping at the summit of, of uh, you know, G20 or the, uh, did Europe meet? No. Europe met Xi Jinping this week. Charles Michel went to Beijing. He did not get an audition there. Actually, it was the German Chancellor who met him first. That was the French president, that was the next. And next. So let's not forget, let's break it down to what are the individual interests of countries and let's ask ourselves perennial question. I belong to that tribe, people who want to see more than just some under the banner of Europe. I think that's the fundamental question. And that fundamental question, you asked me about democracy, I connected it with the economy and security. That fundamental question has to be answered. There's no other bigger democracy in the world than the US. I mean, if you think about economy, not people, then if we still count India as a democracy. But I think we have to think also in this manner. So when we talk about vision, we have to see what does it mean for us if we want to be democratic, with whom you make friends and with whom you don't make friends. Uh, and how and where you draw the line, if you draw it at all. I don't think that Europe has drawn lines. And that might be an issue, including with Russia. Maybe we've drawn the line, people like us who discuss democracy, and people who are really keen on human rights and want to see all these people who committed uh, uh, huge atrocities in Ukraine to see the, the sort of the, the the daylight of a courtroom, or, or, or rather the dark cell of a prison. But we didn't think about what kind of economic model, and I think these are the questions. To me, they're not enough, uh, not only conversations, there's not enough to say, it's not about 
common project that Germany and, and, and France will make a common plan. Actually, it's about sitting together and planning how the industry will look like uh, and how that could be organized around a lot of pluses that we see as a potential, but we don't see realized because there's a lot of uh, national interest. And I have to say, in that context, when I talk about civil society, I do believe that it's largely missing. And if I think of where civil society should equip itself, should be part of the conversation, it's there. Uh, because uh, we really have to push, when I say we, um, I, I would say the business interest, the short-term business interest is hurting even that business in the long term, but it's hurting much more us as citizens in what is one of the most affluent regions of the world. Thank you. Any more questions? Yes, please. Mm -hmm. I heard about well, should I think yes. I think I'm Dalai Kovskaya from Open Society Foundation. So I have a question for just, the Just a second. Is that Sorry. Oh, no, no. Okay. But but others maybe too. Um but you mentioned the demographic deal and sort of necessity to innovate in social policies to prevent further backlash. I wanted to hear a little bit more about that and whether you see um, any examples of such innovation are particularly with this uh, great demographic experiment which we're going with uh, mm. six or so million of Ukrainians um, filling the labor market spaces, but also in competition for, for schools, for housing. Do you see any examples of such um, innovation and how that's changing maybe a debate a little bit around demography and immigration? Thanks. Well, a great question. I, uh, I would... I would first underline that the welfare state and the system of social solidarity, especially developed in Europe, has been tied to the, to the war efforts before, by, mostly by Machiavellian logic of more, having more money and giving a, a future promise, like a bond, social, creating real bonds by making social bonds uh, work in practice, so that the current generation have a promise to be taken care of later on. And we are having a situation in which we need spending and we need efforts on, on defense, uh, but we are also undergoing many, many, many crises uh, that Europe has demonstrated to, to innovate in response to. Pandemic is an example in which common purchases of vaccine was outside of treaty innovation. Uh, we, um, we are now hearing, we heard the new project, which is um, funding psychological uh, help uh, because of the post-pandemic system, but psychological uh, health of European citizens have been deteriorating. We have a new, uh, new area. In, in, in preparations to these scenarios, we also heard we not necessarily put them a common European social security system, but it's a discussion about which is, is there in the making. And you can, in the scenario, see that we were more modest, putting, if you read closer, we were more modest and we said that based on the biggest social and demographic program that Europe has started its programming with, Erasmus, uh, you can innovate a lot more. Erasmus as Highwell City Jones, one of the guys from the Director General who was behind the beginnings of it, uh, described as the biggest uh, biopolitical project. It was about mingling people and producing European babies. 
out of you know the different uh, mixes. It worked. It's the oldest. It's the most advanced uh, 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 demographic policy Europe has has ever uh, embarked on and has been so far uh, working quite well. Not to say that you know all of this is so nice because families doesn't mean peace and stability, as we all know. That children are also have many other things. But completing on kind of or or add, add on adding on or innovating in this direction. Is a is a sense where where Europe probably is anyway going without our, if we're we're trying to be more descriptive of the ongoing trends rather than innovate you know brave new world. You also mentioned Ukrainians, and I think it was in the first months of of the war uh, in Polish press the discussion has been mostly about new wave of workers and. Probably, I will, I will not judge it. Probably it's more natural than not. Because after all, Poland for the five consecutive years have been the biggest recipient of migration in Europe overall. And Ukrainians were only uh, three-fourths, so 75% of, of all the incomers. So one million people came in 2021 to Poland, 750 of them were Ukrainians. It doesn't fill the gap. It doesn't solve the puzzle, and governments are not prepared to that, uh, to, to to deal with that. So there is a window of opportunity. In a way, this is a positive scenario. In a way that we describe, but it also has a uh, has a cost to it because any major policy will involve a lot of money, a lot of spending, and probably will limit further the. Um, economic uh, competitiveness of, 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 of the whole con- uh, European economy. Thank you. Yes, please. So, the microphone to follow me. Sebastian Bolin, I'm from the Federal Academy of Security Policy, and uh, was, uh, wants to come back on the scenario as well. Um, and maybe you can tell me more about the influence of regional projects. You mentioned the Visegrad states. Uh, yeah, with Excel. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the, the Visegrad states that are, um, uh, yeah, are more likely to be uh, connected to the Central Eastern European than to the European Union. But I'm also thinking about the uh, Balkan perspectives, uh, especially there also with their relations to Russia and uh, current ideas of um, uh, uh, what is uh, making it bigger uh, <laughs> to, 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 to make the uh, Union bigger, talking about Moldova, Georgia, etc. Um, because what you found out either in the strategic foresight process or uh, your opinion now, maybe it's a question to the others, uh, what kind of uh, influences regional projects uh, have on the future of Europe? Mm-hmm. What, I mean, yeah, I guess uh, the, the regional projects overall are, no, our observation so far has been that they are, they're, whenever one is not functioning, they're mushroom, the others are mushrooming. In Central Europe, Visegrad has become dysfunctional because a dwarf has started to uh, rule the giant. Uh, Hungary is, you know, basically has used amazing potential with... Uh, by, by, I don't know, enchanting, let's say, political leadership in, in, in Poland, uh, while having completely divergent interests, the most divergent, divergent interests in, in the group of the 
four countries, security-wise, energy-wise, I don't know, even the elements of how do we believe our chances in the world would be. Hungary believes, and I think Orban is true, uh, when he says that uh, the best chance for um, Hungary is for the global world to be a little bit shattered, you know, to redo itself. Uh, and for Poland, this is the worst nightmare. We are at the height in, the, in terms of global opportunities for this country. Uh, of where 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 it is where where the global system is is currently has been so far. If V4 is going down because this has been driving Prague and Bratislava mad, this you know this crazy axis, mm -hmm. uh, then they're innovating. They set up Slavkov Triangle or the, with Austria. There is Central Five. There. And by the way, Poland also innovated three Cs. And you know you have lots of other things. And why? Because regional groupings are part of the European identity overall. Benelux, I mean, after all, Pol uh, the German-French, what is it? And it's a quite a big, two-country groupings, but quite big in terms of territory and population, coordinating on the European dimension. And Nordics, the same, right? Uh, so I think, essentially, these are sort of kindergartens of a larger European project. They are they're also ones inside of European projects of EU as we know it today. They are also essential because when you meet in the room of I mean, 27, right? How do you make decisions? You, you cannot keep those people in one place talking to one another for the whole uh, for the whole one, one day, and sometimes they want two days. And the whole and it still didn't come through to all the people that you you cannot even expect that everybody speaks because it will not create a strategic vision or a decision. But it took, to my knowledge, the whole of um, Donald Tusk's presidency in, in the council to remake the format that not every leader has to speak during one sitting. And for what you need, for the practicality of that, you need certain coordination before. And for that reason, you need different groupings, just, just for that reason alone. Thank you. Does um, anybody want to? Add something to that? Regional groupings, very important, but then subscribing to the rule of law, subscribing to democracy. I think we should not take it away because you can also have a regional grouping that serves to the highest bidder. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting is that Hungary cannot exist in the policy of Victor Orban cannot exist without Hungary having an access to the European market. That is the key of the existence of this particular policy. And I think we sometimes we forget about that uh, because also China will not make an investment if Hungary was not having access to the European market and many other issues. Now, what we forgot often is that actually we look at this prism only through the prism of money. And this war is reminding us that there are other prisms. Ukraine is one-third of the GDP of Belgium, one-twentieth of German economy. And Ukraine now defends, let's say, the rest of Europe of really reimagining the world as we knew it. It's not about money, it's about something else. And I think that something else we have to not only resurrect, we have to actually push more and quicker to establish. And it's not only about defense, it's also about that's something else in Europe has been uh, uh, order or operations based on rules that also help the, the bigger countries, but the smaller countries felt that actually they have a say 
within the way it what it is. And I think that's, that's important. Uh, because why? If you see where innovation comes, and this is not, by no means, I, I, I'm not into business of bashing any particular country, especially not Germany. Germany actually, it's interesting, if, it, if we have the Germany's vision in the light of what the Green Party has as a vision, I think probably a lot of us here will immediately take two pens and sign it. But it's only part of Germany. And I think we also, we're not discussing this issue. But coming back, the current Europe and all these scenarios, if you look at the innovation, you will not find them in, in neither in France nor in Germany. You will find those innovations actually being tried out and tested and sometimes being successful in other countries. And that's why I feel both the European project to some extent uh, has the potential and is not delivering. Imagine if we are all equipped in the cyberspace as Estonia is. And, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, I want to maybe add something to that. I mean, there are groupings of uh, regimes um, outside of the European Union, kind of overlap with members of the European Union. And uh, since February 24th, there's a lot of more skepticism toward them. Thinking of the 17 plus 1 initiative of, of Beijing, uh, you maybe heard of that. The initiative at the moment in that form isn't existent anymore. It's 14 plus 1, maybe the Czech Republic is maybe about to leave the initiative. And this is closely related to Russia's war in, in Ukraine. So there's European member states being skeptical towards outside players trying to influence European politics. Um, I, a couple of months ago, talked to the uh, <coughs> minister of Latvia, and he said to me that it's his impression that the Chinese try to divide Europe into East and West, and that it makes more sense to speak with one voice, right? And this might be a tendency in future as well. So uh, less groupings with outside players and a consolidation of one big European grouping, if you want to say. Yes, please. And probably my question fits now well. I don't know how to phrase it. I'm Andreas from working from OSF Islam on migration and inclusion issues. And uh, listening to you, we have this kind of scenario where you have this long ongoing war. You have this potential where you're talking about innovation, but on the other side, you might have as well malicious actors. And that's my question. Uh, on the identity stuff that what was, called, uh, was mentioning. If you have a scenario, and that's the question, how does basically the long delay of history play out? If we consider basically European space as a very delicate space of inter-imperial relationships and things like that, sometimes I have the feeling a lot of things after the First World War come up. If you look at the neo-Ottomanism of, of Turkey, if you look at the triathlon uh, uh, thing in uh, Hungary, but as well kind of the Polish situation and the German relationship, the German-Russian relationship. So if you have a scenario where you have on the one side have this potential, and on the other side you have malicious actors who can weaponize identities, like for example, uh, Russia does with the German-Russian community, Erdogan does with the Turkish-German community, Probably have seen the events in Leicester, where obviously kind of the Indian government, the Moody government is intervening, things like that. So uh, you can have different scenarios. How does those weaponizing of identities of right-wing actors 
undermine our own position. And what role does basically history or historical identities play in that game? So is that a question directed at historical? I don't know. I don't have an answer. <laughs> Maybe again, you, Michael? Uh, yeah, I think I cannot answer precisely to your question, but in that field, I think about history. So. History is back in many ways, we all feel that, and I think for many ways, and now it has broken open in a much more visible way, and you know, what Russia is doing clearly has lots of historical resonance, at least the way Putin tries to portray it, etc., etc. And uh, my first job was with the OEC, and I, I worked in Warsaw for three and a half years, so I traveled a lot across Central Europe and to Ukraine and that whole space, and it was this feeling that we all had when the war fell, I think, like, I'm going back to history suddenly. I have to read things that were not present anymore to understand this whole region. So I think the concern often in Central and Eastern Europe is that these Western Europeans have forgotten history and they are not interested anymore. They're in their postmodern paradise where, you know, this is all passé, 19th century is behind us, 20th century is behind us. And maybe by luck I never felt that. I feel with this with you guys, I've, I never felt history is going away. History is always there in some way and in some shape. And it links for me to the question of um, regional issues. Some months ago, I wrote a little article that provocatively I called the Polish-Lithuanian Empire is back, or no, Commonwealth is back. And of course, not about Lithuania, it's more, um, I think if we look in the future and we imagine that Ukraine wins this war, however we define it, and it doesn't take too long. I could also see an Eastern Europe that has a new center of gravity, which is actually Poland and Ukraine, because now I feel there's this very strong connection being built also at the level of society and for good reasons. And if those two countries would really align quite closely, and yes, at the moment, the GDP of Ukraine is very small, but I think the potential is big. Before the war, Ukraine was growing really well. Um, we may have a new power access, and I think many people in Germany and in France don't see it. And I, I mean, again, I think Germany should do a lot more and also to hack this new uh, potential alliance, you know, to we, we have to convince the Ukrainians we are on their side. Otherwise, we run the risk that they slip away and say, sorry, these guys were not with us in the hour of need or they were too lukewarm, and we don't trust that they that we are really together in this. And that's another long-term reason, I think, to keep this continent together, which should be Germany's core interest to really do more and be seen to do more to support Ukraine. Mm. Very briefly, I mean, I, I, there, there are definitely those who are obsessed with history in Poland, and... Uh, I don't know what to tell them. I mean, but Ukrainians also relate to that. And usually I tell them, well, this is basically a narrative, but the, the real stuff that is promised is always within the EU framework. Um, whatever opening or new uh, uh, allocated, uh, you know, like job, open, um, job market opening mm -hmm. for, or uh, any regulations that Poland does, which are, have a special status to Ukraine. This is actually EU-made, mm -hmm. EU-conditioned. Um, and currently there is this, definitely this very emotional moment. And I, I am a little bit embarrassed, actually, if, if Ukrainians 
feel that way and they often feel that to, they need to say that out loud about this connection mm -hmm. that we have. But then I'm thinking back between 2014 and, and, and now, Ukraine was never even looking at Poland, which was also, you know, before the elections that got this government and after this government. It just, Poland wasn't so necessary because Ukraine also believed it wants to earn its place in, 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 in Europe. So it's a tricky one. It doesn't necessarily build on these historical narratives. We are talking about pragmatic people, uh, and I mean, just not just in power, but societies that make pragmatic choices, and, and they simply know what's their best interest. Currently, this relationship is so strong to the point of uh, too much, because exactly as you pointed out, the rest of Europe is not yet there where it should be. But Ukrainians are not doing that to recreate Polish, Ukrainian, no, fan sure. Jagiellonian <laughs> fantasy. They're doing that. They want to be in Europe. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, I would maybe approach the question from a little bit of a different angle um, and kind of relating back to this question of, uh, of regional projects um, that we were talking about and how they can also serve as sort of um, an identity building uh, component in the region and I liked the uh, analogy of, of Wojtek about the kindergarten uh, of the European project uh, and without uh, wanting to sound patronizing but I think there was definitely that sort of uh, intention around the Visegrad group particularly to build a European joint identity and uh, through that show commitment towards a European project in the pre-accession years and even after um, the uh, EU accession of these countries. Um, and uh, there was uh, this understanding of history at that point that we are returning to Europe. Um, and now we see a very, very different understanding and I would say instrumentalization, selective instrumentalization of, uh, of history and historical memory about certain uh, malicious actors that somehow overrode this whole return to Europe narrative um, that we have seen in, in Central Europe. And as a result of that, I think what we ended up with is that we have a Central Europe um, that um, potentially could contribute to uh, the European project in two ways, through capability or through commitment. Generally, I think that's how you contribute to various projects. And Central Europe didn't really develop yet the capabilities and has lost the commitment. Uh, and this is why I think we see that these malicious actors, not just outside of the EU, but also um, inside, can now selectively weaponize not just history, I would say historical grievances of these countries that in that period when we so enthusiastically were trying to build a European identity in the region, we disregarded and did not resolve, and did not resolve together. Um, and now that is biting that. I, I do uh, actually really on, on this. I, I would even put the bar lower. It's not even about resolution, but openly discussing this. And actually, I think that's the that's the issue. Uh, the, the, there is a, the, the weaponizing of identity has been allowed. 
because that debate has not been owned by the actors. Because I think it would be fair to say, you know what, we don't know whether we will be able to resolve it. But we are eager to discuss it because we know it's connected to a problem, and better to discuss it than leave it faster. Actually, Russian and other propagandas are absolute uh, uh, experts in identifying that source spot and then really using it because actually it's easy to put a doubt, it's easy to put a wedge. While where is the problem? The, 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 the problem is in, in multiple ways. First is actually, I don't think that this should be a problem because if you look at the authoritarian countries and the, the way how they handle history, then you will not be able to have a debate. I think the problem was that there was not proper debate. And maybe a promise that the debate will not necessarily resolve because a debate will not bring a pre-Trianon number. But there will be a conversation. Um, and that was coupled with the fact that we all became a bit too neoliberal, including the liberals without neo. Oh, media, that's a thing of the market. So if they find money, uh, actually they will survive and they will discuss these issues. And guess what? There was no money in this topic. That was money exactly in the opposite. Uh, and I think we let it go. Second issue was citizenship. Citizenship is at the core of it. You have a number of places in Europe that say you cannot have a dual citizenship. You can, you can be, you know, and that is, you know, that is only now being debated. And all of these communities, the wedge was there, and I think was allowed. I still believe, uh, uh, in a positive way, that if there is a proper debate, if there is media and channels to channel it, these are the issues that will not be resolved, but as being discussed, cannot be weaponized so, so easily. And that's why, actually, I believe, sorry to battle out my own story, in the democracy, um, because actually, uh, uh, we can be critical, and maybe because we put the bar high, uh, but still democracy handles these issues much better. And the last point on this, I, it pains me to defend democracy in times where actually even billionaires are flying out of window in Moscow, uh, uh, losing their lives in one way or the other. And we're here in the midst of Berlin with all the story that it has, and we have to justify why democracy is a better system. Uh, it, it's, it's painful, but that's more on a, on a personal uh, <laughs> reflection. Thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for having me. Um, hi, uh, my name is Marius Kuro, I work at the Institute for Europäische Politik here in Berlin. And I have a question about the future and uh, uh, pragmatism, and it's about uh, Zeitenwende. And I'm looking at Michael Rein, <laughs> because you were I mentioning it. Uh, mentioning um, Understanding democracy as part of security policy. Um, I think it's a bit that Olaf Scholz, this uh, essay of Olaf Scholz, was published in Foreign Policy, explaining Zeitenwende and explaining um, uh, that, or conveying this message that Germany has changed, the German foreign policy, a certain security policy has changed, realism about Russia, taking uh, the worries of Central and Eastern Europe seriously, uh, exporting weapons for the first time to an open conflict, that's all true. Um, however, uh, my question is, uh, will Zeitenwende um, sustain after this war is over and with all of this government? We also have a few books in foreign policy before with Greenstone, I've taken over foreign office with the foreign feminist foreign policy more. 
and value-driven foreign policy, um, but still we see that German economy is hooked on or profits from deals with non-democratic regimes, Hungary, right? Um, Russia was not so long ago. World Cup in Qatar, how many German companies benefited from building infrastructure for this? So, um, not to be focusing on Germany too much, but the question is if Zeitenwender will outlive this war, this government, and then a more general question is the attack of Russia on Ukraine has shaken us enough in Europe to seriously reconsider and um, change the way how we do foreign policy and how we do international trade. Is it just um, a moment that um, out of fear or whatever uh, different reasons there is this 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 realization of a need to change, but will it be a real change? Who wants to start? Or did you? Oh, you had Michael. Yeah, okay. because uh, you, you, you were talking about um, democracy as a uh, as a dimension of security, and that's why it stuck in my head. Yeah, uh, I would love it to be real, but I'm a little bit skeptical. I surely things will change significantly. I mean, the shock is big enough for that. But I don't feel in this society also, not only at the level of government, um, that it's shaking enough, to be honest. Um, I have the feeling, I mean, if you ask me, I think what the Chancellery is communicating about Ukraine is really, really not, not enough. It's very vague often, it's very questionable. And I'm deeply disappointed by it. And then I look at opinion polls and I see SPD is a little bit weaker, Greens are a bit stronger, but that doesn't, it doesn't show in opinion polls. Maybe it's still to come, but at the moment, also if I see the media and if I read the papers, I feel there's still a little bit Business as usual is still quite strong, I would say. So I'm not so sure. Also, you know, there are these calls to have a real inquiry, what went wrong, but there, it was just so many of our political and business elite was involved in it that there's just not enough critical mass to have that inquiry, which I think would be maybe one way to try to pull out this, this kind of thinking, etc. So to be honest, I'm a little bit... Skeptical. We are pushing, and I think it would be great. But I'm, and at very many levels, I don't see it being as deep as we would wish it to be. But my only data are opinion polls. The rest is yeah. anecdotal. Mm -hmm. Walter, do you like the Germans or don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can say everybody in Poland like Zeitwende. Agreed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There, there were the buts, but then the question was, um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, so I will skip the first question, and and I hope I'm not. I, I, there is more hope, of course, in that than than some skeptical realism about the societies. But yeah, I mean, we, we have to be frank. Also, the societies are are usually you know, changing in the third generation, and usually through major shocks. If and. Just walking these streets, and it's great in Berlin. It's really great atmosphere. It's Christmas coming. I don't feel the war is next door. Um, it's and it's a good thing, perhaps, uh, you know, for for democracy and society here. But it's also at the same time that we talk that fundamentally Europe is changing because from a peace project, it started to fund 
5 billion uh, euro arms exports and is probably going to increase it very soon through amendments. So, yes, I don't know how to deliver on the strategic communication, but you're definitely going in the right direction that, that needs to be there. And um, I think you're saying you have a second question, Maria, on the international trade. And I have absolutely no idea how and what next, but it seems like the globalization paradigm is, is now redone somehow. And there should be an economist or someone who has the vision, I don't know, of, of the founder of Open Society to, to answer that question. <laughs> Michael, you want to add Just to reminded one little thing that maybe gives uh, um, some hope. We have this project with uh, OSF about the security strategy, and in the course of that, we conducted an opinion poll. You will read about it tomorrow in Tagesspiegel, I think. We will put it online soon. And we tested narratives on German foreign policy, and we te it's a uh, too complicated to explain now, but the way it's done, it's a little bit more subtle than just saying, are you in favor of A or in, of B? It's about narratives. And so um, in this work, the pollsters realized that first of all, Handel durch Wandel is really doesn't have majority support anymore. So good. And another narrative which tries to fuse more and saying, of course, we have interests, but they are somehow connected to values. You cannot just pretend it's separated and the two have to inform each other. That kind of story got most support, like 62%. And especially after giving some additional questions to set the scene, even more people supported it. So um, I think if the government would lead with a new story, we could maybe have more change also in society. But does the government want to lead with that story? Mm. Like We don't know yet. We do an event on this on on Wednesday online if you want to know more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just to say yes. about, uh, being a, let's say a, a, a skeptical Southern European who now lives in, in Berlin, if this was in Southern Eastern Europe, I would say, oh my goodness, no, forget about that. But what's interesting is actually here, if you have a good uh, good reason and a good and compelling narrative, um, the opinion polls will shift. Because actually people want to believe into a positive story. I know many places where people don't have a positive story and they're just kind of voting or going what's against the, the one that I hate or the things that I hate. It's not here. And that's actually a great strength. But I have a question, and this is especially for the German speakers on this panel. I'm, I'm really weak on, on, in that department in German language. I, I looked at also the Zeitenwende. And there are two. So one is that we're changing because the times have changed, so we had to accommodate the change. And the other one is actually we are working to change times. And I think people like us want to see inside them when we're working to change times because actually that's the future of the of Germany, of Poland, of Eastern Europe, of, of European Union. While I think what we're getting is that we're just changing because the times have changed and we cannot stay where we were at the same place. And I think these two different sites and vendors, if I can do this, they are incorrect, total, um, uh, are, are not only at the heart of the semantics, but I have also a problem of ambition in that respect. And uh, here uh, I can't see bigger of a gap of what all of us Eastern and Central Europeans expect from Germany. And what Germany expects from Germany? <laughs> Question answered. 
Is there more? I mean, more questions, not more side vendor, I don't believe. Really? I mean, we still got a few. I mean, Zoran asked a question actually, and you asked the public if it had more. It's okay? We're good? Okay, so um, thank you very much, and see you next time. <laughs>